And then it also reinforces something that a wise coach once told me, and that is that, you know, sometimes there's nothing worse than running when you're first getting into shape, but then there's nothing better than running once you're in shape. Man, uh, that is a wise coach. That, yeah. that, 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 that's somebody who's, who's got some brain power. Who, who might have said that? I heard he was assistant to the regional manager at the Olympics or something like that. Nice, <laughs> nice. Very nice. Everybody, welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach, and joining me on the phone. Patrick Hollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete <laughs> in Atlanta, Georgia. Currently calling yeah, so, from Orlando, Florida. <laughs> right on. So, yeah, Patrick and I might feel a little bit out of sync if you're listening to us today. It's because Patrick is, is calling on the phone here. Um, but we didn't want to miss a week. There was a lot of things happening, a lot of stuff going on, some good research to share. And so... Uh, we didn't want to miss a week, so we have Patrick calling in from the road here on his way back from Florida. Uh, so, Patrick, did you have a good time down in Florida? Yeah, it was fantastic. It was my uh, the, the, I was at a wedding of a friend, and we're, it was in Orlando, which is a great spot. So I, I hadn't been to Disney World or Orlando since I was a wee little kid, so it was kind of interesting to be surrounded by kids with uh, Mickey Mouse ears on all weekend. Right on. I have been to Orlando a little bit more recently than you have, uh, as you might know. Between uh, between being the father of twin four-year-olds and having a wife who's a big fan of Disney World and is a travel agent, we've been there a whole lot over the course of the past few years. So, very good, very good. Patrick texted me on Friday night and said, can you tell me like some adult-type stuff to do at Disney World? And I said, absolutely. You can go to Tiffin's. You can go to Gico. There's all sorts of things to do. So, so very cool, man. I'm glad you had a good trip. Um, and then, speaking of Orlando, Orlando is one of the cities that bid for the 2020 marathon, U.S. Olympic marathon trials, and did not win because, take it away, Patrick. And that is because it was announced that our own hometown of Atlanta will be hosting the uh, yay, U.S. Yay. Olympic trial. What? Yay, yay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Atlanta will be hosting the 2020 U.S. Olympic team trial marathon in 2020. I mean, it is incredibly exciting news um, for for folks who are a little older who have been in Atlanta for a while. You probably remember we had hosted the Olympics here in 1996. I was uh, a wee little fella, so I remember it vaguely. Um, but it's exciting to have uh, such a big event in the running community happen in Atlanta. Um, right as we on. talked about on this podcast, Atlanta is the second largest running and walking community. If you just look at the size of the Atlanta Track Club and compare it to like the Boston Runners Club or the New York City Track Club. Um, and it's it's just exciting to see that all the hard work that Atlanta Track Club has put into, you know, growing the community and also kind of growing it from being just kind of a walking, jogging community to being one where it was thought of as not only having a lot of people, but a high number of quality races and quality runners and quality athletes. Um, and, and in many ways, this kind of, this event really kind of helps kind of build that narrative a bit more. Um, as we've talked about before, we already kind of have the Olympic legacy here in Atlanta um, from, from 1996. Atlanta is also a city that's used to hosting events like Super Bowls, college football championships, um, those kind of things, even uh, NCAA Final Fours. And so it's good to see Atlanta be able to host a great running event like this. So I was super pumped to see this. Now I just got to figure out how I can volunteer to hold the Gatorade or something at mile 18. 
Right on, man. Very good. Um, and and there's a lot of cool things to say about this, both both building on what you just said or taking away or what you just said, and 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 also a few things that I want to add. Um, first of all, just kind of building on 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 what Patrick just said there. We we here in Atlanta hosted the the Olympics in 1996. I was not a wee little lad. I was graduated from college immediately prior to the Olympics. Um, and in fact, working at the Olympic Games as an assistant venue logistics manager at the warm up track was my first job out of college. Um, and, uh, Just to clarify, great. were you assistant or assistant to the manager? <laughs> so, so no, I was the assistant venue logistics manager, the AVLM, they called us. Yeah, so, um, which, which at the time felt like such a big deal that I was the assistant manager of the venue and could not have been less of a big deal. But anyway, um, it was the warm-up track, which is at Cheney Stadium, um, just about three or four blocks from uh, from Olympic Stadium. And the, the athletes would warm up at our site, and then they would uh, take little buses three or four blocks down the uh, down the street to the Olympic Stadium, and they would complete their warm-ups at Olympic Stadium and then compete. And then oftentimes they would come back afterwards, which was kind of cool. But we had both the Olympic trials uh, about three weeks before the Olympics and then the Olympic Games themselves. And so I got to meet all of my favorite track athletes from uh, the United States and then meet all my favorite track athletes from around the world as they came to warm up at our track. So so that was a very cool thing. But that being said, Cheney Stadium itself, the warm-up track, even the Olympic Stadium, um, a lot of the, the, the venues that were used in the Atlanta games, um, we really haven't capitalized on them all that well. And, and that's not uh, unique to Atlanta. Um, a lot of cities will no. have Olympic games and, and they'll spend a whole lot of money. And, and then it's like, wow, that was great. And then that was kind of the end of it. Um, and, and that's something that's talked about a lot now, like as cities are looking to host it in the future, they're like, okay, what's going to be, you know, what's going to happen 10 years after the Olympics? What's going to be the long-term legacy of that? And I think that, that, that Atlanta hasn't necessarily been good, along with a lot of other cities, with capitalizing on their Olympic legacy. And so um, I do think that over the course of the last few years, like you said, the Atlanta Track Club has, has decided, okay, this is an Olympic city. We're going to capitalize on some of this Olympic legacy and, and try and use it to continue high-level sport here in this town. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I think this is, a, this is part of that process. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, and to your point, like, the, the ways that Atlanta has capitalized on the Olympics were things like, oh, we'll use Turner Field for a baseball team. But that doesn't feel like the Olympics. That doesn't build right. the Olympic spirit. And that's no offense to baseball, but that's just that's a totally different lane. Um, yeah. That's yeah. not a very – like, the Olympics are always very participatory. Like, one thing that's interesting, if you look – like, if you watch baseball in the middle of July, it's a lot of, like, truck commercials, right? It's a lot of – I mean, it's a lot of commercials – Geared towards men between the age of like twenty and forty, but you watch it's the Olympics. It's a lot of fast food commercials. I've noticed if you try and watch like sports, pro sports, while you're on the trainer, it's really distracting because because it's a lot of food commercials, it's a lot of Hardee's commercials, a lot of Taco Bell commercials, things like that. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, a lot a lot of those type of commercials that don't really inspire you to exercise or inspire you to be an athlete yourself or go for the gold. Um, but the Olympics are just a totally different mindset. I mean, you know, you watch your, you watch the Olympics with your mom and your sister and girlfriend. It's everybody watches the Olympics. It's much more participatory. It's, you know, something, it's much more about the stories of the athletes more so than just their batting average and their, their, their kind of stats, so to speak. Um, so that's, that's interesting point you brought up about how it kind of allows Atlanta to kind of build on some groundwork that was kind of laid in the in the Olympics. It also allows Atlanta to just kind of build itself up as, hey, not only are we a great 
city for events, but we're a great like for spectator events. Like you come and you watch the Super Bowl, or you come and you watch um, the Final Four. It's you can come and be active yourself, right? Like it, I didn't think it was a coincidence that the other t- two of the other cities that were um, bidding for this were Austin and Chattanooga. Um, mm-hmm. You know, no one goes to Chattanooga to like drink and eat. They go to Chattanooga to run an Ironman or to, to be outdoors, to, to kind of do something, to be an athlete themselves, to be an outdoorsy person themselves. Um, yeah. And to me, this event, even though, you know, most folks will not be running the event itself, it, it feels much more, like I said, participatory. You can volunteer at the event. It's more like Peachtree than, you know, like a spectator sport. Yeah, and, and with that in mind, um, you know, we, we, had, uh, we had talked about when we talked about the Publix Marathon, the, the, the Georgia Marathon, which is changing its name next year to the Atlanta Marathon. Um, with with uh, the end of that event this year in 2018, they had announced that in 2019 they were changing the course. And then with this announcement that Atlanta is getting the, uh, the Olympic Marathon trials, uh, they said that the, the Atlanta Marathon is now going to be the day after the Olympic trials. And so you're going to have like this weekend where, where you go out and you watch the Olympians or the future Olympians attempting to qualify for the Olympic team, and then you can go out and run a marathon yourself the next day on hopefully some of the same roads. Um, it's not going to be the exact same course because the Olympic uh, trials course is going to be, it's going to be a four-loop course. It's going to be three seven-mile loops and then a five-mile loop. I'm hoping that one of those loops is somewhere in the new Atlanta Marathon course that will debut in 2019 and that they will then be run the day after the Olympic trials in 2020 um, so that you can like compare your splits to the pros or something. I just think that would be such a cool thing. And building on like what you're saying, like taking taking that Olympic trials and then using it to, to fuel a participation movement, you know, um, I just think that would be, I think that would be super cool. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to running the, the, <laughs> the, the, the Atlanta marathon and, or half marathon in some fashion, um, uh, in 2020, the day after the trials, I think it'll be super cool. And I'm excited about that. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I too will probably be looking for a way to volunteer on, on, on trials day itself too. So yeah, very cool. Um, that is cool. Yeah, I didn't know they were changing the course that way. That's that makes it that much more exciting. I also didn't know that it would be timed up quite like that. Well, That's going to be. I'm I'm saying it would be cool. I don't know if they are. It would be cool yeah. if they did. So I don't know if they are. I mean, they they're, they're changing the course. We know that for sure because they, they they announced right. that before we even found out that we were getting the trials. And so we know they're changing the course for next year. I just think it would be super cool for them to change the course in a way that actually capitalizes on on that kind of participation thing that you're talking about, it sort of leverages that, that, that uh, Olympic trials experience in order to, to increase participation among Atlanta runners and Atlanta walkers. So, so we'll see. I'm hoping that they do. Um, I, like I said, you know they can't do the exact same thing because you can't have a multi-loop course with the variance of, of performances that you would get at a big city marathon. Um, you simply can't do that. Uh, people will be tripping all over each other. You know, folks are doing their, their third loop are going to be tripping over the folks who are doing their second loop and you know, stuff like that. So you can't do that. But I am hoping that, that that it's integrated in there somehow. I think that would be cool. Um, yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, speaking of marathons, let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the London Marathon that was last weekend. Maybe you probably saw um, the uh, the London Marathon. It's always it's a world marathon major comes right there after the Boston Marathon, and so. Um, uh, you know, you have your, your spring marathons. It's a big target for a lot of people around the world. If you want to do the London Marathon in 2019, I, you probably need to go ahead and sign up now, I want to say. Um, it's a hugely demand uh, and high demand marathon there. 
Um, and it's a very fast course. Multiple world records have been run on that course. The current women's world record uh, was run on that course about 10 years ago, and it was run by a British woman named Paula Radcliffe. Uh, she ran a mind-blowing time of 2.15.25, um, which at the time, well, still now, um, is is minutes in front of what anybody else can run. But it was uh, it was even farther out there when she first ran it about 10 years ago. But anyway... Um, let's start off talking about the women's race then. The, uh, the, the women's race was won by a woman named Vivian Chariot. Uh, she ran 2.18.31, and that was the fourth fastest of all time, uh, the fourth fastest marathon performance by a woman of all time. And as it happened, two of the three women who have gone faster than her, so you had Paula Radcliffe, who did it on the London course about 10 years ago, ran 2.15. Um, she was in the commentary box watching, um, and then... Two of the other three women who have gone faster than Vivian Chariot were actually in the race. Uh, one of them was Mary Katani, and the other was Turnesh Dababa. Um, and both of them uh, went out very expressly with the goal of trying to break Paula Radcliffe's record. Um, Katani and Dababa, they, they, they started at 2.13 pace, as a matter of fact. So, so they, they went out not only with a mind to, to beating Paula Radcliffe's record, but actually to crushing her record. Um, and they were paced by one of Katani's training partners, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, Chariot, Vivian Chariot, and a woman named Bridget Koski, uh, they ended up finishing one and two later on, uh, but they kind of led this chase back. Um, uh, Chariot and Koski were 29 seconds behind at 5K. And at halfway, Mary Katani went through halfway at 107.17, and Vivian Chariot was a, a minute and 40 seconds behind. She went through at 108.56. Um, but... People start too fast. Um, <laughs> the pros start yep. too fast. They they uh, and when when you and when you're trying to break a world record, if you're trying to run faster than anybody's ever run before, you you're probably only going to be able to break it by just a little bit. So going out, you know, two minutes faster than that, or on a pace to break it by two minutes, was was a little bit insane, a little bit suicidal. So the um, Baba ended up falling off the pace at like 12 miles, then she she caught back up, and then by about 19 miles, she was in a walking. Uh, Mary Katani ended up slowing down a whole lot, and she ended up finishing fifth in 224.27. So her splits end up being 107, then uh, 117, so a 10-minute drop-off between her, uh, her her first half and her second half. Uh, Chariot, on the other hand, uh, you know, she ran through the halfway in 108.56, and then uh, she ran the second half in about 109.40, so that she was able to finish in 218.31, and looked brilliant crossing the finish line. Um, looked really, really good and very strong. Uh, she's a really accomplished track runner. Uh, she's been a world champion and Olympic medalist on the track. Um, and so she is uh, very strongly stating that, that, that she has good marathons in front of her as well. So it'll be interesting to see what she's able to do over the course of the next couple of years as well. Uh, what do you think about the women's race? I thought, it, I thought it was one of the most impressive performances we've ever seen given the heat. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, when you look, I mean, as you know, you can't just stack up times, just, you know, boom, 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 and say, all right, this time was one second faster than this time, therefore it's better. I thought, given the heat conditions, this might have been the most impressive performance we've seen in a while. Um, and I, yeah. I, you know, I don't quite have the history of following marathoners that you do, but I was almost thinking, I, cu I couldn't think of anything that really kind of blew my mind from a pure athletic performance perspective, more so than this race and, and what we saw. I mean, as you mentioned, the field was stacked. And not only were they stacked, but they were going, and they really didn't drop off for a while. Um, yeah. At least not as much as you would think, given the conditions. Yeah, you mentioned the heat. So it was it was about 70 degrees, um, which mm -hmm. is brilliant for spectators. It sounds super nice, but 
as we've talked about on this podcast before, that's about 25 degrees hotter than the ideal temperature for, for marathons that, that history and science has proven is, is the ideal temperature for a marathon. 70 degrees, you're generating a lot of heat running at that high of an intensity for more than two hours. Um, that's that's going to catch up with you. And clearly it caught up with, with Catania and Dababa. Um, but but right. Chariot kind of kind of cruised on through and was able to run the fourth fastest of all time in what was a fast course certainly, but but in in less than ideal conditions. Um, you know, you mentioned the heat. It's it's worth kind of retconning a little bit. Our our, our last uh, talk when we were talking about the, the the Boston Marathon. You know, you and I were looking at the um, the the uh, the the average times over the course of the past ten years, and. The average time over the course of the past 10 years at the Boston Marathon is just under four hours. And the notable outlier in that is 2012. And in 2012, the average time was like 4.15. I mean, it was significantly slower, uh, 15 yeah. to, to, to 20 minutes slower. Um, and the reason why is because in 2012, it was 86 degrees at the finish. Um, and there was a, there's an athlete that I coached that ran in 2015, he ran this year in 2018, and he ran in 2012. And he, he actually reached out after the, the podcast, after our review of it, and said, yeah, the weather in Boston was terrible. He said, I would take it every day. I would take it every year in Boston. I would take the weather that we just had rather than what we had in 2012 uh, when it was so burning yeah. hot. Um, and so, so, yeah, as bad as the weather was, as epic as the conditions were in Boston, um, strictly from a performance point of view, um, the heat of 2012 was actually worse. So, I mean, heat can really profoundly influence the outcomes of a race. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's, let's not in any way downplay that. And, and, and like you suggest, Patrick, that, that, that definitely makes Vivian Chariot's uh, uh, performance look even better. Um, and it makes Elliot Kipchoge's look even better. So why don't you tell us about Elliot Kipchoge, what he did at London. Sure. So Kipchoge... Uh as you mentioned, he did win the men's race. It's almost got to a point. He's almost like the Muhammad Ali of, of marathon running. Um, he's won what, like nine of the last 10 that he's run something just yeah, outrageous. Like that. Yeah. He, he's, he's nine and one in marathons and mind you, it's not like he's going out and running, you know, his local marathon, you know, that's, that's all world marathon majors. It's the Olympic marathon is in there. Yeah. He's nine and one. Um, and once again, it was brutally hot out there. Um, I, you know, in, in post-race interviews, he said he wanted to go out and run the first half in 61 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then they took it out at an absolutely blistering pace. Um, the lead group went out and ran the first mile in 4.22, the first 5K in 14.28, and Thir- which puts thir- him thir- on. 13, yeah. Yeah, the, fir- the, 13, the first 5K. Yeah, 13.48 for the first 5K. <laughs> <laughs> which is insane. Um, keep going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I just set the treadmill like at that pace and just hopped on, I don't even know how – that would be a couple minutes before I just get flung off into the wall. And oh, yeah. that's on pace for what, a 58-minute ha- first half marathon? Is that about right? Yeah, and, 58 minutes for the first half and a 156 marathon. Yeah, they set out for the first 5K at 156 pace. 156. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I I couldn't imagine being his coach and seeing them going through like I hope they're sure about this. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
that, that yeah. almost brings me to say like uh, coaching or like kind of advising high schoolers. We're like, all right, here's the race plan, and then they smoke the first four hundred of like sixty two, and you're like, all right, well, good exactly. luck, buddy. <laughs> yeah. um, that's, that's exactly what's like. Yeah, yeah. You you would think that pro coaches working with pro runners don't know what that feeling's like. Oh, they know what it's like. They they clearly do. Four twenty two for the first mile, thirteen forty eight for the first five k in a marathon. Yeah. Oof. I, and then predictably, uh, the pace did fall off after that. Um, but he, I mean, Kipchoge still ran strong. And yeah, he, I mean, he, he still won. ran. He, he ran. He ran two hundred four seventeen. So he, he still he still took the win in two hundred four seventeen, um, which is about a about a minute and a half off the world record. But you know, still brilliant. Yeah, and at, uh, with smiling in pictures, of course. Right? Maybe that's why he won. <laughs> Uh, but a lot of the lead pack really kind of dropped off. And it was interesting because, you know, he said in the past that in the marathon, you don't drop people, you just run your pace, you just run that blistering pace, and then people naturally drop off or will just kind of drop off. You don't have to necessarily make moves. You just go out fast and then keep it steady, and then people will kind of slowly drop. So exactly. that's Kulishiki's strategy in general. Um, he's not one who puts in surges necessarily at certain points or – um, you know, tries to rely on a big kicker necessarily. Mm. But what I would say to that is I love that race strategy as a spectator. I love watching pros who go for it like that. However, if you, to those who are weekend warriors or, you know, are accountants, lawyers, doctors, et cetera, and running marathons on the side, this is, and you're not trying to like compete and, 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 but by compete, what I mean is you're not trying to beat specific people. You're not trying to, like, you know, take home a crown or a certain medal. This is not the strategy to take for, you know, no. getting a Boston qualifier or, hurt, or hitting a specific time because, A, when it goes bad, it can go very bad, as it did for, like, Mo Farah. Um, right. I mean, he was really hurting at the end, and he's a world-class – I mean, he won a gold medal in London, if I'm not mistaken – now, he, um, he won a he won he won a gold medal he won two gold medals in London and he won two more in 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 Rio so no he's he's a four time gold medalist and a multi time world champion in the five thousand ten thousand meters yeah. yeah right and if that if, if that strategy breaks his back so to speak whew. um but it was fascinating to watch fascinating to follow um and I just remember watching it thinking man this is fun but I am so glad I'm not having to partake <laughs> in this right now. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and 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 to your point, and to your point, that race broke everybody except for the winner, and the winner was was the greatest marathoner certainly of the past decade, and potentially the greatest marathon of all time, Elliot Kipchoge. Um, you know, he's he's run he's run ten marathons, and he's averaged two hundred four forty four for the ten marathons that he's run. Two hundred four forty four for the for those marathons, just incredible. Um, and in defense of Mo Farah, Mo Farah did end up hanging on and running 206.21. He, uh, he ended up, that's a, that's a new British record, um, and so he ended up finishing third in a new British record there. Um, but after the race, he, uh, he was quoted, he said, uh, talking about the pace, it was ridiculous, do or die, but you go with it or you hang back. I just said, go with these guys, see what happens. If you're going to die, you're going to die. Um, and so, so yeah, he was clearly rolling the dice, and and it worked out pretty well for him. But but yeah, for those of us who uh, who who um, who can't go to go go to major marathons and who don't do this professionally, yeah, rolling the dice like that might not be the uh, the, the best way to go about it. There, um, and and you know, and, and it's it's worth mentioning, kind of circling back around to the women's race. 
uh, look at what happened in the women's race. The women's race, the two women, the two lead women went out faster and neither one of them could survive it. And it was the one who went out more intelligently and hung back and was 100 seconds behind at halfway that ends up taking the win and running the fourth fastest race of all time. Um, and so, so yeah, Elliot Kipchoge can do this and can hang on to this. Nobody else can. <laughs> right, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except maybe for Yuki Kawauchi. Now, now Yuki Kawauchi couldn't run this fast, mind you. Um, but, but, but he's he's certainly uh, uh, hard as nails. And so, so in our, um, we're, we're not going to make it a weekly segment where we have a Yuki Kawauchi news update. But I did want to say one quick thing here about Yuki Kawauchi before we move on to talk about our research here. Um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Yuki Kawauchi and how how great it is that that he's um, um, uh, an amateur. Um, and that he works full time at a school, and he's and he's uh, um, uh, an administrator at a, at a school there in in Japan, and and he kind of does this uh, in spare time for his for for fun. And I think some of us, myself included, have kind of bought into that a little bit too much, um, because a lot of us kind of saw, saw that he was running you know 12 marathons a year, and he's running them super fast, and it's not even a pro runner, and it's not even his his real job, and it kind of felt a little bit more like a sideshow, you know. Um, and, and, but clearly he's, he's a very serious runner and, and, um, not only is he fast, but, but he's very deliberate. And so there was a piece that came out on the same day that we recorded our last podcast and it was in Japan running blog and it was written by this guy named Brett Larner. Um, and Brett Larner is, is almost kind of like a de facto ambassador between Japanese running and American road races. And so he's been kind of a, kind of an agent, but, but more than that, just a, a, a supporter, um, and, a, a almost like a protocol officer for, uh, for Yuki Kawauchi over the course of the past couple of years. And he runs this blog, um, and he wrote, um, a, a long blog entry that came out right about the same time we recorded the last podcast. Um, and he talked at great length about the deliberation um, and the planning that went into uh, Yuki Kawauchi's training for the Boston Marathon. Um, and the big thing that, that, that I took away from it um, was that Yuki Kawauchi isn't this kind of happy-go-lucky amateur who just jumps in a bunch of races and runs by the seat of his pants. Um, he's not some sort of viral sideshow. In fact, he's a very meticulous and very deliberate runner. Um, yeah, he races a ton and he goes really, really fast, but that doesn't mean that, that, that his training is haphazard or even his race schedule is haphazard. So uh, Brett Larner wrote uh, in that uh, Japan running blog, he wrote, how did it happen? He was lucky that the weather played to his greatest strength, but Kawauchi came to Boston fully prepared for any situation. He was smart, strong, unafraid. There hasn't been a marathon when somebody so fully controlled everyone else around him since Wanjiro in Beijing in 2008. That's talking about the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Uh, this was the work of a master artist at the height of his powers, crafting a work of lasting beauty in his own recognizable and idiosyncratic idiom. It felt like the hand of fate, he told me later. All through the race, I kept remembering what you said. This is the day I was born for. I'm so glad I ran Boston, unquote. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I encourage you all to check out that, uh, that, that Japan running blog, that piece that was written by Brett Larner, who I, like I said, is, is kind of his friend and ambassador and maybe even part-time agent a little bit, um, talking about all the very specific things that, that Yuki Kawauchi did with the plan of potentially, um, winning the Boston Marathon. Um, so... Uh, check that out. Now, on that note, by the way, like I said, we like to think of him as, oh, this amateur, da 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 Well, the very first thing he did as soon as he returned back to Japan, they, he landed and there was he was mobbed by this, this, this massive group of journalists at the airport. 
Um, and and they said, what's next for you? And he said, well, I'd like to announce that I'm going pro. <laughs> right. And so, um, and so, so he's no longer going to be an amateur. At age 31, he's now going to be a, a pro marathoner. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see whether this will help or hurt. Now, he did, and those of us who are who have been public school teachers can appreciate this. He did say he's going to finish out the school year <laughs> at his current school. Um, you know, he doesn't want to leave them in a lurch. Um, and he's he's been working on this this uh, this project for the hundred year anniversary of the school. And so he says, I'm going to get to the end of school year. I'm going to help him finish up this project, and then and then I'm going to go pro and running here. Um, he uh, he said, uh, quote. I've been absent for a week and came back a day later than scheduled, so I've caused a lot of inconvenience, unquote, which I thought was uh, such an interesting thing for him to say, and it's so bound up in, in the Japanese cultural norms of, like, shame and duty and things like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but, then, but then he has a principal. His principal's name is Principal Takimoto, um, and Principal Takimoto said, quote, If that is his wish, then I would like to respect it. I think that a result such as that he produced must have made him think. We all want to support him, unquote. Um, and I was I was struck by the principal's comment, not only because it's super supportive, which I appreciate, but also the fact that the principal recognized what a big deal it was that he won the Boston Marathon. And like, if I think about the principal and the the bosses that I've had over the course of the past several years, I would like you know win some race or, or do some major thing or qualify for Kona or something else like that. And like, they didn't even know I was a runner. <laughs> yeah, you know. And and granted, I wasn't I wasn't Yuki Kawauchi and I wasn't winning the Boston Marathon, but still. The fact that his principal, like, not only knows that he's a runner, but recognizes that he's a good runner, and recognizes that winning Boston was like a step above everything else, right? That that was like a, a particularly big deal. So I appreciate that about his principal as well. So anyway, Yuki Garuchi, after this summer, can no longer be our our favorite amateur runner who goes out there and wins world marathon majors, since uh, he's now going to be going pro. Uh, thoughts on uh, thoughts on the latest on Yuki there, uh, uh, Patrick? Yeah, I would say in in general, you kind of knew that uh, he was being very deliberate with this. Like the more we learned about him, the more like okay, this is he has to he has to have some kind of deliberation or professionality to his you know approach to running. Even if he's not necessarily a paid runner, you knew this was not just kind of a side gig he did, um, or that it was a bit more than just a passing hobby, right? Um, and then it's also fascinating. So running is much bigger in Japan that it is here. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at, like, Mizuno, which is an athletic apparel company which was founded in Japan, there are big sports that they are running and and baseball. Like, it's like, those are their two sports over there. So right, it's kind of interesting right. to see how, what kind of effect that has on, like, his relationship with his principal, right? It, and yeah. how it's kind of a bit more of a respected activity. It's not kind of viewed as something, you know, the crazies do um, on the side, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, and and, and I think you make a good point. I, but the the you know, and I I think we should have known, and and I, I put myself in this category as well. We should have known how professional and how he is. But I think that so much of it, I mean, so much of the the the, the conversation around him has been built around, oh, he's this amateur runner, and he just kind of does it for fun, and you know, he holds the record for running a marathon or a half marathon in a panda suit and stuff like that, you know, and and. And again, it kind of makes him look like this sort of joke sideshow. Um, and I never thought he was a joke necessarily, but but like I said on our podcast, I didn't think he'd win Boston. Um, no, he thought no. he'd win Boston. Yeah, he thought he'd win Boston, he, and he prepared specifically with a mind to winning Boston. Um, but he did it in his way, 
which involved running four marathons in the or three marathons in the in well four marathons in the four months leading up to 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 Boston. Um, but he chose those very deliberately. I mean, like like this article said, he he ran the Marshfield Marathon, that one where he was the only finisher in single degree temperatures up in, in Massachusetts. One, because he wanted to have like extreme cold, because he knew that that was a possibility in Boston. And two, he actually spent a lot of time when he was on that trip running the Boston Marathon course. Um, mm-hmm. And then he, he did uh, the two other marathons, the one he did in February and the one he did in March. One of them was super hot. So it's like, okay, we know it can be really hot there, see, 2012. And so, so he did a really, really hot one to kind of try and make sure that he, was, he had both the physical and the mental conditioning to be able to, to survive if, if the race turned out to be hot or a hot race day. Um, and then one of the other ones he did was uh, had a lot of hills in the back half. Um, and so, so the, the course kind of mimicked the, 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 uh, the Boston course. It had a lot of downhills in the start and a lot of uphills in the back half. And so, so again, you look at that and you're like, oh, he's just kind of racking up his sub-220 marathons. He's just kind of doing his, his, his viral thing. Um, and in fact, no, there, there, there's a method to this madness. And there, there's a much deeper and more, like you said, more professional method to the madness than I think a lot of us wanted to recognize. So it'll be interesting to see... Now that he's going pro, like whether that changes or what that changes about him, you know, I, you know, is, you know, he, he's, he's accustomed to having this full-time job and, and I don't know, we'll see. Um, yeah. And I, I, did, heard, I did my first, go ahead. I'll say, I've heard some professional runners say they went back to having a job because they almost needed something to kind of occupy their mind outside of running. And it wasn't just running all the time. Now, with right, that said, right. I should also clarify, they're not, most of them, them, I've never met anybody that says, hey, I'm going to be a professional runner and have kids and have a job all in the same year. I mean, this is not, you know, right. um, that would be, obviously, I'm, that would be a bit too much. But it's interesting to know that sometimes going professional is not just an automatic bump in your time or in your performance. Right, right. I mean, we'll, we'll see. You know, and I, I, I do think... Um, we're going to be talking to a, a professional runner next week on the podcast, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and 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 so it'll be interesting to talk to her, and 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 maybe we'll even ask her this question about you know what what do you think is going to happen with Yuki Kawauchi now that he's going from having a job to not having a job and being able to do all the things that a professional does. But um, yeah, that's a um, quick quick preview of next week's uh, podcast. We're going to be talking to Nicole De Mercurio, uh, uh, North Gwinnett High School alumnus uh, and. Uh, uh, University of Georgia alumnus and and uh, who finished fifth place, fifth or sixth? Uh, six, I believe. Patrick, six, yeah, sixth place in the Boston Marathon uh, a couple weeks ago. So, and is that fitness runner? And so, so we'll look forward to talking to her uh, next week. But anyway, we'll we'll ask her kind of about that, and, and that'll shed a little bit more light on professional running, and, and maybe that'll that'll help us get an idea about it. But it will be interesting to watch one way or another. He's he's. Yuki Kawauchi is nothing if not interesting and compelling, and and he came onto my radar just a little bit more before he became on came onto the world radar, and so um, yeah, I, I I look forward to continuing to follow him over the course of the next couple of years. Um, Agree, and I consider you like the guy that finds the band before everybody else with uh, Yuki. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like you know. Like like one month before everybody else, mind you. <laughs> you know, it's not like I was this visionary who called it out in 2008 when he first PR'd or something like that. You know, but uh, uh, but 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 no, podcast favorite, and so we will continue to follow him. Um, one other thing I did want to mention with regards to news here, and then we're going to talk about a little bit of research. Um, with regards to news, there was uh, some new 
guidelines that were released by the IAAF on Thursday. And here we are on Sunday. We're recording and releasing this on Sunday. Um, and and uh, as many of you might know, it's kind of common practice in, in politics to put out a controversial or a potentially controversial piece of news on a Friday, on a Thursday or Friday. And the reason why is because people don't necessarily read the news on Friday and Saturday because they're focused on other things related to good weekends, busy Saturdays, you know, birthday parties, uh, uh, that sort of thing. Um, that's what we did yesterday. That's the reason why I said that. Um, and uh, and so, so it's not uncommon for people to put controversial things in the news on, on Thursday and Friday. Um, well, the, the IAAF released uh, new guidelines related to, to gender um, in uh, their uh, released it on Thursday, um, and so it really entered the news cycle in the United States on Friday, um, and and we haven't quite had enough time to read about that and digest it yet. Um, the, the the short version of it is that they said that middle distance runners, people from basically the 400 up to the mile. Um, who are going to compete as women, they're capping their testosterone levels such that if you have uh, a naturally elevated testosterone level like Castor Semenya, um, around whom a lot of this conversation has centered, um, then you're going to actually have to, to synthetically lower your natural testosterone levels in order to be able to compete against women. Uh, and we've talked about that on this podcast before. Uh, and make no mistake, these guidelines are clearly targeted at Castor Semenya. Uh, she's an 800-meter runner, and they're only applying to people between the 400 and the mile. Um, and so, so, so clearly, I think that she's a target of, of, of these new regulations, um, or at least they were designed with her in mind. Um, but we haven't quite, uh, Patrick and I haven't quite had the chance to, and, and, and the track world at large hasn't quite had the tra chance to, to digest them yet. Uh, and to analyze them, and so we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks um, after we talk to Nicole Di Mercurio, after we have a little bit more time to think about it and and hear a little bit more from Castro Semenya and other athletes um, about about these new guidelines. So 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 we're not dodging a bullet here. We're just going to put off um, talking about those new general guidelines from the uh, gender guidelines from the IAAF until we have a little bit more information and a little bit more analysis out there. Um, so stay tuned for that. Do you have anything to add about that, Patrick? Uh, no, other than to say, I actually have my initial thoughts, which I had when I first saw the headlines. But as you said, you know, initial thoughts aren't always complete or comprehensive or accurate thoughts. So we want to, you know, we want to take some time to digest this, do a bit more research, and, and find out what's really going on before we broadcast an opinion or or a reaction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, 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 we live in the in the the twenty four hour news cycle in the social media world where. Uh, where, where people will tend to, to, to post something prior to, to really digesting it, uh, and sometimes they look back at what they posted or what they recorded, and they, they regret the fact that they did it. Um, we're going to try and buck that trend a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and, and we both had, had initial reactions to it and some strong initial reactions to it. And, and if you want to listen to some of my thoughts about you know, backgrounding the, the, um, the, the issue itself, you can go back and listen to the review of the 2016 Olympics that I recorded a couple of years ago uh, before Patrick came on the podcast. Um, and uh, I talk about Castor Semenya on that installment of the podcast. Um, but this is obviously the development that, that we want to explore and that we want to, to talk about a little bit more. So, so we will in a couple of weeks. So, so stay tuned and, and, and be sure to join us then. Uh, but for now, this week, let's talk about some research that came out this week. Patrick, you go first. Sure. So um, this is this uh, research kind of takes a different, a bit of a different topic um, that we've been dis discussing with the marathons and 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 the new rule. Uh, but as many folks know, physical inactivity is actually considered a pandemic both nationally here in America and globally. Um, 
you know, more and more people are suffering from health outcomes related to a lack of activity in their life. Um, and as most folks who listen to podcasts know, physical activity is a key to a healthy life in general and even lower healthcare costs. You know, um, humans were designed to be active and, and to, you know, um, we were, you know, to be roaming and to kind of have different physical tasks that they have to take on each day. As we become, become more and more of a sedentary society, there are, you know, um, health outcomes or poor health outcomes that come from that. Um, now, Science Daily Journal ranks physical activity as the fourth leading cause of death worldwide, which gives you just an idea of how much of a problem that is. Um, and although evidence so, for the so, benefit... So, to, so, so to, to, let, let, me, let me reiterate that just to make sure, because I feel like my voice is coming over more clearly than yours is since I'm sitting in front of the mic and you're on the phone. But just to make sure you said, you said inactivity... Um, and so, you know, the whole sitting is a new smoking. Sitting in inactivity, according to, did you say according to the World Health Organization? Uh, Science Daily. So according to Science Daily, uh, uh, inactivity is the fourth leading cause of death uh, in the world. Now, let's be clear on that. Everybody dies ultimately, but it would be the, the fourth leading cause of premature death uh, in, in the world today. So, yeah, uh, keep going. So, and then... Yeah, most folks know that there are benefits to physical activity, right? We've kind of, that message has been kind of produced since the 50s or so. Um, but physical inactivity kind of remains on the rise. And, and motivation plays kind of a key component in this trend, right? You know, a big reason a lot of folks are physically inactive is because, quite honestly, they don't have a reason to be active. They don't have a reason to get up and do something. They don't have a reason to turn off the computer and go outside or to you know, engage in physical activity on a systematic or daily or, you know, as a part of a routine. Um, now, traditionally, the dominant neurobiological approach to exercise behavior and behavior policy considers physical activity in and of itself to be a reward, right? So it's considered that it's rewarding to have physical activity, therefore we just have to convince people to do it, and then they'll do it, and then they'll kind of naturally um, realize how great it is. Um, however, exactly, yeah. negative kind of effect. Yeah, so, 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 let me, uh, so, sorry to, to, to talk over you. Like I said, since Patrick's on the phone, we're, we're not totally in sync with one another. But, but yeah, d just to, to say, so what, what, what is woven into that assumption is that the reason why people are inactive, the reason why people are not outside pounding the pavement or, or riding their bikes or swimming or whatever it happens to be, is that there's, there's something that's preventing them from doing that's like logistical. Like there's not enough time in their life or their commute is too long or something else like that, right? That, that, or they're, they're too busy with their kids. And so if you can encourage people to find a way to make the time in their day, then they'll make the time in their day. And then they'll find that the, the exercise is so fundamentally rewarding that they will continue making the time in their day. And so there, there's, there, there are very specific um, uh, effects or consequences of taking that approach. Like if you think about the policy behind that, um, if, if that's the approach you're taking and you want to create a policy that's going to encourage people to become healthier because that's going to cost less for, for health care and everything else like that, you, you would then say, okay, we're going to, to mandate that everybody has a one-hour lunch break in the middle of their day, 30 minutes of which they can use to exercise, right? And so you can build in policy around that if you believe that, that there is a fundamental um, uh, reward to to activity and that if people if you simply give people the time they will become more active and and thereby will get all of those rewards right and so, and so then a, study that yeah go ahead and i say at a younger age since you're a school teacher you'll appreciate this then that says all right we have to have one hour of pe and pe is just right. 
here's a bunch of bouncing balls. Now go play, you know, that kind of approach. Right. Yeah, totally. And, and it's, you know, I, I've often said that, that one of the biggest differences for me when it comes to, there's a, there are several, but one of the biggest differences for me when I, when, I, when I started coaching adults rather than coaching high school students is that high school students, they're busy. They got a lot going on, but they got the time. You know, because because that time is literally carved into their day. Um, you know, their school ends in such a way that they then have practice where their whole big team gets together and practice at the same time from 3.30 to 5.30. Done. And then they go home and they have their dinner and they do their homework and then they go the next day and they repeat the whole thing again, right? Adults don't have that. Adults don't, <laughs> you know, adults can, can schedule stuff, but they don't have a time every single day that's carved out of their day during which physical activity is there. Um, you know, and, th and then as you just suggested, kids can even take an elective or a requirement, a physical education requirement, which will then schedule another hour in the middle of their work day to do it. Um, and so, so yeah, not, um, so, so not having that, those specific schedules, I think is huge. But again, what this, what, so, so, but this is all predicated on and, and what this study is getting to, and I'll, I'll let Patrick get that back to it in a second. It's predicated on the idea that if you give adults time, if you were somehow to, to create, to, to, to recreate that situation for adults, if you give them the time, they will want to do it. And, and they, they will find their rewards in it, and they will, they will therefore become more physically active. And not only individually, but as society, we will reap the benefits of having a healthier population. Mm -hmm. That's the presumption. Now tell us about the study. <laughs> so, and it tends to better understand the factors that kind of underlie the regulation of exercise behavior and kind of like what makes people exercise or not exercise. A group of researchers just performed a systematic review of uh, currently published studies. So this is not a new study in and of itself. It's just a review of all, a lot of the different studies already published. They tested the automatic reactions triggered by stimuli associated with different exercise behaviors. So to put more you know, colloquially, they're just looking at all the research or a lot of the research that examined the neurological response to exercise, right? So they're kind of looking at like brain activity it's, itself. And what they found was that physical activity is rewarding. That's good. However, it was, they were found it was rewarding with physically active individuals. Then they looked at sedentary behaviors and they felt that was rewarding for more sedentary individuals. Right? right, which in a way makes sense. And now the question is, and that's really where they left it. Um, mm -hmm. So that kind of put a cheek in the armor of the discussion that physical activity is rewarding. We just have to give people space or give people um, motivation, and then they'll just kind of naturally exercise and naturally find that it's you know, very rewarding. Because as we've mentioned before, there are negative affective responses to exercise. If you ran the Boston Marathon a couple weeks ago, your body was sending a lot of signals saying, let's not do this. Let's hop into this Dunkin' Donuts instead. Um, mm -hmm. And really kind of what this study gets at, a, the, the first big takeaway is individuals are different. You know, and, and that sounds very generic. That sounds like a very kind of simple response. But it's amazing how much we keep digging more and more into studies of psychology, sociology, et cetera, how much we find individuals are wired differently to some degree. But then the question is, is it, is it nature or is it nurture? Um, is it that physical people who are physically active have kind of slowly developed a, you know, a, a kind of positive um, response to exercise to why now their brain kind of still releases those endorphins during exercise? Or is it that, you know, they're kind of naturally hardwired that way to be more active? 
Um, so to me, the kind of, that's one of the big takeaways is that everybody's different. And then it also reinforces something that a wise coach once told me, and that is that, you know, sometimes there's nothing worse than running when you're first getting into shape, but then there's nothing better than running once you're in shape. Man, uh, that is a wise coach. That, yeah. that, 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 that's somebody who's, who's got some brain power. Who, who might have said that? I heard he was assistant to the regional manager at the Olympics or something like that. Nice, <laughs> nice, very nice. Yeah. <laughs> very good. No, and that, that's actually, and that that was one of my takeaways when I was thinking about this. Um, and so, so the first takeaway I had is is just this notion that there's rewards for inactivity because I think most people listen to this podcast, and certainly you, Patrick, and I appreciate the rewards of activity. We appreciate what what being active gives us. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we, we appreciate the, the, the positive neurons and the endorphin flow and, and, and all those other side benefits as well. We, we, we appreciate all of that stuff. But but what this suggests is that all the stuff we get from being active, people who are inactive, get that stuff, too, from being inactive. Yeah. And, and, and that that in and of itself is a huge, huge potential finding um, the, the, the fact that that. Somebody can define themselves um, both chemically and sociologi- sociologically um, about, by being inactive as much as we can by being active. I think that's huge, um, and, and, and that matters because I think about like how hooked we are on this stuff, and so, so people can be similarly hooked on inactivity just the same way we're hooked on activity. Um, and, and then in turn, that kind of leads into to the, that super wise point that you just mentioned from some brilliant coach who must have been an assistant venue logistics manager during the 1996 Olympics. But, um, and, but um, it's that it's that it's, it's that there's a lot of inertia, right? Yeah, that that, um, that if somebody's inactive, there's a lot of things that are conspiring to keep them inactive. And it's not just that they don't have enough time in their life. Um, that, that there is, in fact, things that are conspiring to keep people inactive. Um, and, and it's going to take a little time to overcome that inertia. Um, and and you know, the reason why I've always felt that way is because you, know, you hear about people who, who something happened in their life, um, and, and so they just went out for a run. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I'm reminded of your story about the Boston Marathon bombing, but I don't think your story about the Boston Marathon bombing quite applies. But, but you hear about people who got divorced or they're sitting there watching TV or something happens and they're just laced on their shoes and they just went out for a run and they were hooked from the start. You, know, you hear those stories? I, I don't, that, that has never been my experience. Um, I was not hooked from the start of running and I think a lot of people aren't. Um, I think you hear that among people who are runners, but I think if you were to ask most people who are not runners, hey, have you ever run before? Yes, it sucked. Um, you know, most people really don't like it. And I think that this kind of helps shed light on that is that, that there are some rewards for being inactive and that, that if you're going to get somebody active, it, you can't just say, oh, well, let me just give them one run and they'll be hooked. No, you need to have two runs, 10 runs, 30 runs. Um, you know, you, you need to establish a pattern of activity before people are going to start really appreciating and understanding those rewards of being active. Um, yeah, yeah absolutely. This one. I think it's and, and so, I mean, I've worked in health communications, and I remember talking to somebody who spoke about, you know, the, the communications policies behind, like, anti-smoking campaigns. And one of the big mm-hmm. things they always say is, essentially, it's going to hurt now, but you just have to make it, like, 30 days, and then it'll you'll be in a whole new world, so to speak. And I, I can't really speak from firsthand experience, but... And they just talk, and, and I almost wonder if the same thing applies to exercise or physical activity where 
you can't tell somebody, go for a run and you'll love it, or don't be lazy. You almost have to frame it as, look, you're gonna, it's going to be a grind for 60 days or for, for an extended period of time early, but there's a whole new world waiting for you where you will enjoy it. It's just going to take time, and you're going to have to kind of grind away and kind of just put in the, the days and the miles and the hours early, and then eventually you'll look back and you'll realize you're enjoying it. Uh, and that really changes the perspective then this sucks, but I do it every day cause I have to, um, right. Right. Yeah, there's, there's that sense of like, there's something waiting for me at the end, or there's, there's an enjoyment waiting for me at the end where this can become a routine and it won't be just a daily or weekly struggle. I mean, and, and it's probably made worse, frankly, like the inertia is probably made worse by, by culture. You know, yeah. if, if, uh, you know, I did a road race yesterday, my first road race in six months, Patrick. Um, and oh, so I, did, I did a ro- So, so it went well, man. Thanks. Thanks. Um, uh, just glad to be back out there and, and quick shout out to, to, to often podcast listener, uh, Drew Wilkinson, who put up a sign that said, welcome back, George, and played my request when I ran past him and stuff. So, um, that was actually, it made what was, uh, already kind of a special and important day for me, even more special, and more important. So, so Drew, if you're listening, I appreciate your, uh, your support of me specifically and of the Jonquil City Jog 5K more generally. But anyway, um, but you know, I, I went out there and did it. And, and there's definitely those of us out there who, who, you know, we embrace it, you know, and we have the stickers on our car and we have the t-shirts talking about the other races that we did. And, 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 you know, we have the gear and everything else. And if, and if you're, if you were somebody who's never really done that before and you showed up on the starting line yesterday and you saw that, like, and you're not one of one of those people. You're not part of this tribe. It's probably even more intimidating. It probably creates even more inertia that makes you not necessarily want to get off the couch. Um, so yeah, I, I think this study. I'm glad you brought it. It has me thinking a lot more about uh, and respecting. It has me being a lot more respectful of why it is that people continue to to remain inactive rather than just hey, let's all put on shoes and go out and run because we're all going to love it. And it's awesome. Uh, right. It's just not how it works. Um, yeah. Um, so good piece. Um, uh, that, 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 that was interesting. And I, I, I do look forward to yeah, one of the, one of the other things that that study said at the end was more research is needed. And as somebody who does research, I can tell you that's pretty much a standard line at the end of most research studies is, Hey, we need more research in this area. Um, I really do think it's true for this one. I, I think there's more that's, that's necessary. And so I do look forward to, to hearing more about it yeah. in the future. And I'd like to add one final point that I just thought about. Um, so we talked yeah, about yeah. The, the, the marathon trials in Atlanta in 2020. One of the things I'm looking forward to about that, too, is I can tell you, I can tell you how many family reunions uh, and social functions I've been at where somebody says, you, you know, you're a runner? You know, like, who's chasing you? What, I don't, why do you do that? <laughs> and it's hard to explain yeah. to people who've never done it because, in a way, it doesn't make sense. And, I, you know, you get that. It's a lot of effort for seemingly little tangible rewards, um, you know, because they can't, they can't feel what I'm feeling when I'm racing. But I'm looking forward to having an event where maybe people who are not runners can kind of go and see and understand this is what a marathon looks and feels like. This is what the atmosphere feels like. You know, for folks who can't go to Boston with me or can't go to different marathons with me, maybe they could see like, oh, this is, this is what the excitement is about to some degree. So that's a bit more external, sure. and this study is more internal about the internal rewards you receive. But um, that is definitely one thing I really look forward to about this this marathon trials coming to Atlanta. 
Yeah, me too. That's an excellent point. I appreciate your tying that back around. And those external and internal things, um, they kind of go hand in hand, you know? I mean, you make external changes and they can cause internal changes and, and, and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, very cool. Um, all right, let's talk about my piece of research real quick and then we'll wrap it up here. Uh, I did one uh, that it was great that I happened upon it yesterday because it actually um, uh, it, it dovetails into something, that a conversation that I literally had yesterday. Um, but uh, yesterday I went to a birthday party with my sons and, and it was an outdoor birthday party. And for two and a half hours, they were constantly moving. Um, and they're running all around and then they wanted to, they, they got home and they wanted to scoot, you know, get out on their scooters and all that sort of thing. And, and when we were at the birthday party, this, this older girl, um, who is about 15 or 16 probably looked at them and was like, how do they do that? Like, how do they keep on going like that? Um, and, and so with that in mind, uh, I happened across a research study that came out just this week, um, in Frontiers in Physiology, the journal Frontiers in Physiology, and it's entitled Metabolic and Perf Fatigue Profiles Are Comparable Between Prepubertal Children and Well-Trained Adult Endurance Athletes. Um, and so essentially what they did is that they studied, uh, the endurance profiles of, of kids, uh, prepubescent kids, kids before they went through puberty, boys. Um, and, and they compared them to adults and they said, all right, is there some physiological reason why it is that kids seem to be able to, to, to go, 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 go. Um, and, um, it was interesting because the, 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 the researcher was one guy from Australia and one guy from France. They worked together on this. Um, and one of them said, uh, prior, sort of the outset, one of them said, during many physical tests, children might tire earlier than adults because they have limited cardiovascular capability. They tend to adopt less efficient movement patterns and they need to take more steps to move a given distance. Our research shows that children have over, overcome some of these limitations through the development of fatigue-resistant muscles and the ability to recover very quickly from high-intensity exercise. And so, in other words, you know, when you take kids that are, they, they took a group of kids that were between 8 and 12 years old. Again, they were all boys. Um, and, and they said, they said, when you look at the way that they move, they move very inefficiently because they're still kind of getting to know their body, right? Right. Um, and then they said, and then they said, they also, because their hearts are smaller, their lungs are smaller, um, their veins are smaller, and so they have limited cardiovascular capability. Their, their ability to deliver oxygen to their muscles, that's lesser. Um, and then, of course, their legs are shorter, and so they take more steps for a given distance. So you combine all those sorts of things together, and they're very inefficient as creatures, as people, right, as athletes. Um, but then what they basically found was that, their, that, that kids between the ages of 8 and 12 overcome all of those metabolic and physiological inefficiencies by being in really good shape, you know, frankly. Um, they, they develop really fatigue-resistant muscles, um, and they're able to recover really quickly from high-intensity exercise. So let me, let me tell you the way that they came to that. They, they um, had three different groups. They took one group of 8- to 12-year-old boys, and then they had one group of adults who were inactive, and then they had one group of adults who were very active. They were national class runners and triathletes. And so very active adults, inactive adults, and 8 to 12-year-old boys. And then they did something that probably borders on the sadistic or unethical. They put them all through a cycling test, which I can imagine subjecting 8 to 12-year-old boys through a cycling to exhaustion test. But anyway, that's what they did. 
Um, <laughs> and they got IRB approval to do it, so you know they, mu they must have had some safeguards in effect. So anyway, um, and uh, and they put them all through, and they said the findings. They said we found the children used more of their aerobic metabolism and were therefore less tired during the high intensity physical activities. They also recovered very quickly, even faster than the well trained adult endurance athletes, as demonstrated by their faster heart rate recovery and their ability to remove blood lactate. Um, and so yeah, kind of fascinating here. They they. They excelled, they, they, the, the kids uh, exceeded the inactive adults in every way, in every measure. But they actually exceeded the active adults, who again are national class runners and triathletes. So, so not just, you know, running a couple times a week, but people who are training, adults who are training. They, the, the kids actually had faster heart rate recoveries uh, and removed blood lactate more quickly than, than the, the in-shape adults there. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, so... so Said another way, they found that, that, that kids are physiologically more capable of, of doing endurance stuff than, than well-trained endurance athlete adults. That's <laughs> phenomenal. Think, yeah, right? <laughs> so I, I think it should be said, I do not have any kids. However, uh, I have many of experiences. I have like 20-something younger cousins. Um, I, have, I was a summer camp director for several years. Anybody who's ever been in charge of children for any given amount of time probably has the same reaction as that 15-year-old you described. You're just wondering, how on earth are these people doing this? And the fact that it's been proven, you know, scientifically, like why they have such a strong motor or such a long motor is just fascinating to me. I mean, I told you I was in, I've been in Orlando this weekend. I wish I could count the number of times I would see, you know, a poor mom or dad just walking and the kids just running circles around them the entire time, just absolutely like, like they are just getting out of bed and the dad or the mom is just absolutely dying. Um, right. right. So that's a good example. So that's a good example. So, so, so what this means is, is you think about it in like the Disney World context, right? And so, so in the Disney World context, first thing in the morning, the, the, the parents are going to be able to outperform the kids, if you will, right? The yeah. parents are going to be able to, to, to rush to the, to, the, to the ride after they rope drop the park and, and all that sort of thing. So the parents are going to be, be, be more physically capable or capable of putting out a higher you know, physiological performance than the kids are at, at the beginning. But by the end of the day, the kids and the adults having put out multiple uh, efforts, you know, multiple walks across the park, multiple waiting in lines, multiple, you know, the physical stress that comes from being a ro roller coaster. Like, by the end of the day, the kids are going to be recovering from all of those more quickly and ready to keep on doing them, whereas the adults are going to have that accumulated fatigue from throughout the course of the day. And so I gotta, the adults are actually going to be more worn out by the kids than by the end of the day. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, like, I was talking to one group of parents, and they're like, oh, we're doing, like, one per day for, like, five days or something in a row. And I was just like, mm -hmm. God bless you. I don't know. How, and, but, like, the kid probably recovers and is, like, ready to go for another day right. at Magic Kingdom or whatever. Um, and that, to me, is, is almost their kind of real... Uh, superpowers, their ability to recover from a soccer game or something and play in another soccer game or mm -hmm. play in another baseball game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, my, my sons, back to the Disney context, we did this thing called Early Morning Magic one time, which was super cool, and Casey the Travel Agent can tell you all about it. Um, but they let you into the park early, and they let you get on three rides in Magic Kingdom. And one of the three rides they let you get on is this one called uh, the Seven Dwarves Mine Train. And, and because very few people get to get in for Early Morning Magic, 
um, you get to just ride it over and over and over and over again, just in a row. We rode that freaking ride seven times in a row. <laughs> and the only reason, and the only reason why we got off after seven times is because Dad said, "I need a break. We we, we got to get we you you, you got to let me return to equilibrium here. Like I need a break." Um, and my sons are ready to keep on going. And so we took a break, and then we got on the freaking thing again. Um, and and but but you know I, I might be stretching the findings a little bit here. But but again, the the idea that they're recovering, that 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 that. Physical effort is harder on them based upon their, their 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 physiology, but yet they recover from it more quickly. So it's easier for me to take, but yet they recover more quickly. Um, yeah, kind of fascinating. So so it also has some significance, by the way, the the um, with like what to do with your kids. If you're you know, an adult who's trying to figure out, you know, I want my kid to be an athlete and I want them to be to be. Uh, you know, active throughout the course of the rest of your life. What's the best way to do it? Um, the uh, one of the the French uh, researchers said our study shows that muscle endurance is often very good in children already. So it might be better to focus on other areas of fitness, such as their sports technique, sprint speed, and muscle strength. This may help optimize physical training in children so that they perform better and enjoy sports more. And so, in other words, if you have a kid uh, who you know wants to run the local 5K, his muscular endurance is probably already good enough to run the local 5K. Um, and, and you're better off actually focusing on other things rather than just having them go out and run with you. Um, yeah, which I think is interesting. And then also they said, and this is probably more significant in terms of epidemiology, but, uh, they said the onset of physical issues related to activity, um, you know, is there some reason why adults have less muscular endurance that, that do do your, do your muscle changes or do your muscles change somehow developmentally when you cross over into adulthood that makes us more susceptible to, to, uh, all the diseases like diabetes that are related to inactivity. And so is there a muscle change that takes place? Not just like a training change and not just like a shift in your life where you move from being more active to less active, but is there actually something developmental that happens during puberty that makes our muscles, uh, less able to endure that decreases our muscular endurance? Um, and I think that's potentially a really interesting one. And, and, of course, that derives from the fact that these kids, 8- to 12-year-old boys, have better muscular endurance than, and recover better from activities, uh, have better lactate clearance than highly trained adults. Um, so is there something that, that happens to your muscles when you go through puberty that, that influences your, your lactate clearance ability and, and the fatigue resistance of your muscles? We'll see. Yeah, more study to be done, like we were saying before. Absolutely. Final thoughts on that one, there, Patrick. Yeah, uh, my my final thoughts are it, it's two things. One, I wonder how that then ties into kind of the intrinsic motivation. You know, if if mm-hmm. if going for a roller coaster ride seven times in a row is going to be something that leaves you dead for the rest of the day, that does kind of change the calculus with how motivated you are to do something. You know, whether it be <laughs> run a five k or, or ride a roller coaster. Um, yeah. And then the other, and then I just want to agree with with those researchers that said. They had, their takeaway was the best way to foster, or one of the good, best ways to foster activity in children is to teach them sports technique. Because yeah. I can just tell you, growing up, you know, I loved playing baseball outside and soccer and kickball and kick the can, et cetera. But once I learned, like, I hear the rules and here's how you throw and how you catch, then my love of the game just shot to the roof because then you can understand. Then you're not just kind of running around, um, you know, aimlessly. And so it's interesting, you know, more often than not, one of the reasons people are not motivated to do something, not just in terms of activity, but in, in anything, is because they don't know how, or they don't know how to do something successfully, so they just give up, or they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. Like, I know nothing about computers, so when something goes wrong with my computer, I don't really dig deeper and kind of push through. I just kind of say, well, I'll unplug and replug and hope that helps. Um, right. So it, that was kind of one of my big takeaways is then kind of they have that physical capacity, so then growing their knowledge for how to you know, use that capacity may be the best way to, to kind of engender a, you know, lifelong love of the game or love of activity. Yeah, yeah, and, and certainly any of us who have had, any of us who have done triathlons and have had to learn how to swim as an adult can, can appreciate, uh, you know, learning motor patterns, swimming motor patterns as a child. I mean, the people yep. who swam growing up, uh, even if they only did, like, summer swimming, those people who swam growing up, they swim circles around us in triathlons because we just don't have those motor patterns. Um, and, and they're just not encoded in our neurons the way they are for people who learned them when they were, they were prepubescent. So, so yeah, um, I, I can certainly appreciate that from a, from a firsthand point of view. Well, Patrick, have a safe trip back, man. Thanks. Look forward to seeing you and catching up. All right. And everybody, don't forget to tune in next week to uh, listen to our interview. Thanks for listening. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Casey the Travel Planner. Thanks once again for listening, everybody. You can find us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. Finally, of course, don't forget about Casey the Travel Planner, our other sponsor, my wife. You can find her on Facebook, facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner, M-E-V. Drop her an email at Casey Travel Planner, that's K-A-C-I-E, Travel Planner at gmail.com, or just visit her website, CaseyTravelPlanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.